it's kind of like a lens with photography. You know, you go in, you go out, you go in. And with kindness, hopefully it's with kindness, um, that you edit yourself. You know, you say, this works, this doesn't work. But it's after you've spilled a pot of stew all over the floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and you just I'm going to hold on to the carrots, I'm going to hold on to the chicken thighs, you know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is This Choice, a podcast that asks writers how their work with poetry influences the choices they make in their daily lives. Does poetry help them live the good life? This is Ren Powell, and thank you for joining me. This week, I am talking to Madeline Beckman. Madeline is a poet, fiction, and nonfiction writer. She's a recipient of awards and grants from, among other places, the Poetry Society of America, New York Foundation for the Arts, the Henrik Boll Cottage in Ireland, and Fondation Valparaiso in Spain, and Zavana Inara, Croatia. Her poetry collections include Hyacinths from the Wreckage, published by Serving House Books, No Roadmap, No Breaks by Redbird Chapbooks, and Dead Boyfriends, Linear Book Arts. Her work has been published in journals, anthologies, and online. She is a contributing editor for the Bellevue Literary Review and Agora, Literature and Arts Journal. So jumping right into the conversation with Madeline. Did you start writing? I began writing in high school, as many poets do, and I just didn't stop. For me, writing was a place of solace and also a place to be completely uninhibited in expressions or thoughts or where my brain might go. Um, I think it serves that purpose for many people. And I just continued writing through college and graduate school, even though I was doing other things. I mean, I wasn't an English major, so it was sort of on the side. And I started submitting work to publications in my early 20s and got rejected, 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 and got depressed and depressed. <laughs> At the same time, I was also working as a print journalist, um, and I was writing pretty much about anything that was of interest to me. I started writing about dance primarily for the Village Voice, and then I just moved on to specializing in health and medicine, but we'll get into that later. Anyway, um, but I also, in graduate school, I had a statistics teacher who said, Madeline, what do you really want to be doing? Because I just really was um, not interested in statistics, uh, which was required in journalism school. Anyway, I said, well, I really want to be writing poetry and interviewing poets. And he said, well, why don't you do that? And so my entire journalism um, program at that point um, went in the direction of poetry and poets. And I was, uh, I interviewed Galway Cannell, Stanley Kunis, Jean Valentine, Seamus Heaney, James Lousden, Cornelius Eady. Um, I, I, at the time, I was also teaching at NYU um, in the Gallatin division, and I invited um, people like Holm Teuben and um, many poets to, to speak to my classes. So I, I interwove my journalism and my poetry, and um, there was a period of time I was a special uh, writer at Harvard in their press office, and Seamus was teaching up there, and I got to interview him. So. I, I was always very interested in not just my own writing, but the writing of other poets and how they how they 
had a life in poetry. Um, so I wanted to hear, you know, how do you create a life as a poet? I mean, Jean Valentine, in interviewing her for my master's thesis, she said, oh, well, the thing about being a poet is um, when you're at a party and someone says, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a poet. They always excuse themselves to say, oh, excuse me, I'm going to get another drink because <laughs> at least in the United States, it's, um, you know, you say you're a poet. I think it's changed over the years, actually. Um, and the, I continued doing an array of things, like writing articles and dancing and traveling, but I always wrote every day. Because it was that place of solace and expression, yeah. Yeah. I like that because so many people have uh, sort of the opposite idea. When they sit down to write, they become very inhibited rather than uninhibited. Was that was writing uninhibited for you from the very beginning, or was that something that developed as you began to write poetry? Um uninhibited, you know, because when I put my first book together, I, 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 have, I, have, <laughs> I have journals going back to when I was 12, and horrendous poetry, horrendous <laughs> And when I put my first book together, I remember sitting on this apartment floor, I've been here for many years, spreading all of these horrendous poems all over, and just picking and plucking and revising and... Um, actually seeing the progression, and another poet who I had interviewed was Audre Lorde, and I remember interviewing her, because I did Jean Valentine and Audre Lorde as two women poets in the 50s, um, this was part of my master's thesis, um, journalism master's thesis, uh, two women in the 50s who really had to struggle to, to write, and Audre Lorde said, you know, I'm not embarrassed of any of my bad poetry, any of my young poetry, because that made it possible to get to where I am today. And, I mean, she was a very strong individual. Um, however, I believe, I, I agree with that. You have to go through the, you know, that muck to be able to, or hopefully be able to assess your own work. I think it's very important to assess your own work. That makes <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, actually, about the uninhibited. Uh, well, maybe. yeah, you did. You said you began writing with an inhibition. and Without inhibition. Yeah, without, oh, you began writing without inhibitions. Yeah. And that, were you, was there uh, a contrast between that and what you were writing for school in prose? Was, how did you become acquainted with poetry as a form of expression in the first place? Um, honestly, I, I remember reading Ferlinghetti when I was, uh, you know, like 11 or 12 or something. Oh, he wow. just blew me away. He just blew me away. It was funny because I was just in San Francisco and um, I went to City Lights bookstore and, you know, they give you the little stamp and, um, and he just blew me away with, with his poetry. And I thought, whoa, this is poetry too. And I, I mean, my mother could recite Shakespeare and she was, um, it wasn't the, and Lear's limericks. I mean, I sort of grew up with that in the house. But, um, and I think that, really, for all and Getty, it's very funny when yeah. I think about it. Um, it was very, it, it was fun, it was energetic, it was uh, uh, 
cursing. It was, you know, um, and it, it's interesting because Seamus, when I had interviewed Seamus, he hadn't been educated in poetry. He, coming from an Irish background, he said to me that um, he never thought he could possibly write poetry. And then he, I forget exactly who the poet was that he mentioned, but he said he read this poet. You know, oh, you mean that's poetry too? And that just completely released him to be able to become the poet he was, yeah. Wonderful. So you're actually one of the few poets I've spoken to who read and listened to poetry before you began to, you began to write it on your own. Oh yeah, yeah. Ah. and that music of the poetry I mean, that, that's very that was very important. I mean, it's very silly. In fact, I <laughs> I was just telling a friend recently. I, mean, I was very little. I think I must have been in first grade, and you know, you have to get up on stage and you do some sort of recitation. And I did this recitation. Seeing, seeing things at night, I, I ain't afraid of snakes or toads or bugs or worms or mice and things that girls are scared of, I think are often awful nice. And I did it from memory, and I, and you know, it's, it's the voice of a boy, actually, that poem. Right? <laughs> and um, I think the music and the fun um, of poetry, as serious as my poetry might be, it's always the music and the fun that really um, is, has to be there for me. Yeah. yeah. When you look back on it now, do you see all of these interviews that you've done as a kind of apprenticeship in a way? Um, I wouldn't say apprenticeship. I would say guides. Mm -hmm. right. um, because as I say, I was not an English major. I was an anthropology and East Asian studies major, and um, and so I read a lot of Chinese poetry in um, in translation, and um, I won't go off on that. But so I mean, in because of the Chinese characters and they imbue so much. Um, Chinese poetry has so much, and I think that if there and I was reading that in translation when I was very young and. Um, like Carolyn Kaiser, who is really, I, I love her work. Um, she had this whole Chinese influence. And I do think that um, understanding the many levels that um, words can imbue, you know, um, a poem with, that's a very awkward way of putting that, but a poem can be imbued with so many levels of meaning. Um, depending on how you use the language. And I think that possibly I picked that up from Chinese poetry and translation. Yeah. Do you think now looking back that anthropology had a great deal to do with what you wound up writing about and how your poetry formed? Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. I, um, a lot of my work, which maybe you picked up, is... Um, so I, I guess I've traveled a fair amount, and um, it's always important to me, people in the sense of place. And I think that <laughs> my thwarted uh, um, anthropology, you know, I mean, I did get accepted to go to graduate school for anthropology, and I decided not to, but um, people and place and culture and the way that different people live and think and language is very important to me. So yes, I do think that the anthropology is, you know, 
has found its way through the themes in, in my work, or I'd like to believe that. You know. My standard question is to ask about the myth of the tortured artist and how that plays into your identity as a poet. But in your case, where you came to poetry with the idea that this is fun, um, <laughs> but you did write through your teenage years, and you've said you were that, that these poems were spread out all over the floor and embarrassing you until you learned to live with them. Did you go through a period of, of thinking that you had to be a tortured artist because our culture does hold that kind of image up as what the poet is? Well, I will preface it by saying that my father was um, an inventor. Hmm. And so I grew up in a house with very creative parents who were also nuts. Um, <laughs> and, um, and really, creativity and art was really way more important than paying the bills in my family. And, um, and I think that um, my parents were tortured, but at the same time, they really knew how to have a good time, and they found that very important. And um, so I, however, I don't think it's just a myth. I, um, many artists, as well as non-artists, are tortured for a myriad of reasons. Um, and I mean, I had this conversation with somebody who was a sculptor. Uh, he was talking about how he's tortured by his dreams, and you know, and and maybe it's because of my training. I was trained as a classical ballet dancer, and that is it takes a huge amount of discipline. And I think that I have throughout my life. I mean, I didn't start dancing until I was older. I was maybe again twelve, eleven, twelve. Um, to exercise a discipline over my body and over my mind. And this is not to say that I did not go through terrible periods of depression through my late teens, my 20s, you know, undergraduate school, you know. Um, I, I really don't know many who don't, you know, teaching undergraduate, graduate, you know. Um, and, um, but I've tried to discipline my body and my mind, not always successfully, um, but I haven't given up, and um, and I, as I say, you know, I think that anything uh, worthwhile, whether it's uh, cooking a good meal or you know dancing on point or writing a good poem, um, it doesn't come easily. Um, and it's one of my little peeves with um, students, particularly undergraduate students, where. <clears throat> They think, oh, I've written this poem, it's coming from me, and it's fine. And I remember once Tom Lux, in one of, he was a guest instructor in one of the classes I taught, I had a student, and the student said, well, that's my poem, you know, and Tom said, well, that's, that's good, but art is, is a bridge, and you either complete that bridge or you don't complete that bridge. And I think to complete that bridge, it takes dis discipline to complete that bridge, and there is a level of, and I think that this shift that I talk about, like, oh my God, I was writing about peanut butter consistency, something or other, I had no idea when I was like, and then you get to a point where you discipline yourself to, you know, it's the old personal and universal thing of, um, how can I speak to someone? I'm speaking to myself, but I want to speak to, I want to speak to someone else. I want someone else to hear this and possibly you know, it will touch them in some way, or 
soothe them in some way or get them through a night in some way or um, make them laugh in some way or um, have them to take another path. You know, I mean, I really do, I mean, I really do believe that. If I can, and I will delete this and, and edit it out if you're uncomfortable with it, but it's very interesting to listen to you talk about your process, actually. I feel that's what you're talking about. You, you come to poetry as a place to play, mm -hmm. but you have described yourself as a person who's very disciplined. And right now you're talking again about this discipline it takes to take the poetry out to the reader. So I'm wondering if you see it that way, if you see it as I'm hearing it, mm -hmm. that poetry affords you a container to mm -hmm. play in, and then once you've done all of that playful bit, you use this discipline that you have to then reach out to a reader. Am I understanding that correctly as a process? Ren, it's, that's, precisely what, that's precisely what it is. And I think that um, I, I, I always, I think it is Paul Clay who said I come, that he comes to his work with the, um, the creativity of a child and the mind of an adult. So he brings, he brought to his work that freedom of a child before it's censored, before it's educated. I, 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 I teach that and I try to do that on my own to let it out and then not to come with a, with a sensor to hack, to hack it, but it's kind of like a lens with photography. You know, you go in, you go out, you go in. And with kindness, hopefully it's with kindness, um, that you edit yourself. You know, you say, this works, this doesn't work. But it's after you've spill the pot of stew all over the floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and you just say, I'm going to hold on to the carrots, I'm going to hold on to the chicken thighs, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't want to say it's my little invisible friend because I never really had a little invisible <laughs> um, And, but I, I think I always loved reading and I loved reading aloud. Um, and um, I, and I, I do think you can have an imagination down on the page that you really can't carry around with you. I mean, unless, you know, I mean, a lot of those people are locked up on the 13th floor of Belgium, you know. Um, but I do think that it was a place of um, unbridled expression. You know, I could continue doing that. Um, I don't know if I veered off from what you said, but we're talking about the great myth, and I was, sa I was saying that I don't think that it's a, a myth. I do think that, you know, there, there are artists and non-artists who are tortured, and I think that in, in some ways I was very lucky that I had found um, dance and maybe just an, like, an internal sense of knowing that I could really veer off unless I exercised some discipline over myself. And I do that even as you know, as an adult, and I don't think that the discipline is a bad thing, but I think, like Paul Clay, that you have, you know, it's like sort of um, strings on a shade, you know, up and down to let the light in and put the light down, and, um, and also, I think, knowing yourself, you know, I mean, I know 
that I can go to extremes. And I've learned that in my work that something that may be too raw, um, that I have to pull back a little bit. But I, I don't deny myself going there initially. Hmm. But do you think that that kind of extraordinary pain is a requirement for artists? I don't think extraordinary pain is. I think empathy is. Hmm. Uh, I think I think observation, I think empathy yeah. is very important. Do you remember when you began to write with an audience in mind to reach out towards a, a reader? I think probably in probably in my 20s, so that's late. I mean, I, th I mean, there are graduate students, you know, getting MFAs <laughs> who have all, who were, you know, I mean, there are bloggers, there are, you know, people doing their own pod, podcast, you know, and they're, you know, nine, you know, I mean, they're nine years old. Um, so the world has changed so much, you know, being digital now as opposed to, you know, a, the Stone Age when I grew up, but uh, <laughs> pre-digital. Um, so, I think that I think the the publishing came around the time oh I took a, a workshop. It was just like one of these continuing ed things. I think it was in my early twenties and um, and I submitted work and he published something. And it was a really uh, gritty poem that he published. And I thought, whoa, you know, this can happen. And so I started sending. Um, but it, being in his workshop, he had suggested that I submit it to the New York Quarterly, which I did. Yeah. So actually the consciousness of writing for a reader, became it happened after you were published for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really thought about it because I didn't, I never really thought of myself as a writer. I mean, I really thought of myself as, as a dancer and, um, and, you know, I was writing about dancing in, mm -hmm. in my twenties. So the, the poetry and the writing really, um, sort of took over, um, with the dance sort of subsided and the, the writing career really, um, you know, became a career. Well, in Hyacinth's From the Wreckage, you write a lot of biographical information. And I was wondering if you're conscious of shaping your life story as you write poetry. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting question because um, <laughs> there's a, there was, I think it's, maybe it's still up at the Brooklyn Museum, um, there's an exhibit of George O'Keefe's work. And it's, I mean, her clothing was extraordinary. I mean, I think her clothing almost for me um, uh, overshadows her, artwork, but she was very conscious. It was very interesting because I thought about this at the exhibit because of your question. And she was very conscious of um, shaping her life and having an audience and presenting herself. I never, I never was. I still am not. Um, and I, I think really for myself, um, it's more about it's going to sound so ridiculous, but really improving myself for me, you know, am I eating better? Am I exercising? Am, you know, am I sending out more? How is my teaching going? Um, am I doing the projects I want to be working on? 
Um, and so it, so it's really not a conscious story that I'm trying to do because I mean I have ricocheted all over the the place through you know through my career I've never ricocheted away from the poetry I have to say that I haven't and I have been interviewed before where people said well do you consider yourself more um, a prose writer or more poetry writer which I think is really kind of an interesting question but um, I, I just think it it, there's really no doubt. I mean, I really think of myself more of a poet um, because I've never veered away from that from the time I was a, a teenager. And um, and I don't really think that I have ever thought of my shaping my life except to make it better in some way, you know, um, more... Less, less tortured, if you will. <laughs> less, less tortured, if you will. Yeah. When you read a poem that you wrote five or mm. ten years ago, do you hear your voice, or do you hear a voice of someone that used to exist? I, I hear a younger me. You know, I, it's not that um, I forget. You know, there are poems in my first book, Dead Boyfriends, right? that were written when I was 19, and um, I remember, there's this one about a boyfriend and guy I live with, and, um, you know, I, I think of you when I find it difficult to scratch the difficult places in my back or something like that, right? <laughs> and I remember, I remember that very clearly, um, and I remember that 19-year-old woman, so, um, but I... I, I hear that as a more undeveloped um, voice, a more undeveloped um, uh, subject matter. Uh, I mean, I would like to believe that my, this, my themes and my subject matter um, have broadened. I would like to believe that. So, but I... In terms of my voice, I think that um, maybe I have more control over it than I have. I'm more aware of it than I was when I was um, 19 years old. Is that, does that answer it? <laughs> in, in Hyacinth's From the Wreckage, this is your most recent book, isn't it? Yes, yes. That I see kind of two things that popped out at me. Um, there's a lot in here. But the idea of ritual um, <laughs> comes up quite often in this feeling of ritual. Um, can you say a little bit about how ritual ties you to the world? Or Oh, that's very interesting. Um, that's very interesting. Um, I've never really thought about that, actually. <laughs> Did you know that it pops up several times in the collection? Well, I know that there's a poem called Rituals, right? Yes. And little rituals, and um, but I, I do have rituals, and I think that rituals perhaps are part of that discipline. You know, I mean, oh. so I just finished planting my window pots, right? And you know, I plant geraniums, and and I have done that for years, <laughs> years and years and years, and I, um, I. 
always have to do a bouillabaisse in the summer. You know, I mean, there are, there are <laughs> things that I that I that I do, and um, I mean, this is a this is so boring. But um, from the time I was a child, and also because I had freelance for so much of my life, um, I have kept track, and you know, for tax purposes, I I have kept track of. All the money that I spend. I mean, it's, it's people think really, Madeline. Right? If I if I buy a newspaper, buy a magazine, if I you know go get mints or something, I keep track of it because my well, do you have receipts, Madeline? Right? <laughs> um, so I think that that watering. You know, I have quite a number of plants, um, and I think secretly I'd like to live in the Amazon. But um, <laughs> watering my plants. I mean, I think. These kinds of things um, keep us on track, right? Um, and um, you know, I, I go. You know, I, I I used to be a very serious runner, um, but I I play squash, I row, I do yoga. So these kinds of things keep me on track. And when I when I've gone for too long without you know, doing my rowing or my squash or my yoga or my running or whatever. I bike every day and um, I feel so happy. <laughs> so I do think that part of those rituals, um, you know, uh, keep me happy. They, you know, I like to do, like, I love ferry boats. Wherever I go, I have to get on a ferry boat. When we were in San Francisco, we had to take a ferry boat. When I'm in Europe, I always choose to take ferries, you know, that... <laughs> So this is my, this is a little ritual, and I do think those rituals keep me, I don't want to say keep me happy, because I'm not going to say I'm a happy person, because I think happy comes in bits and spurts, you know, um, but I do think, I look forward to those, those moments, like planting my journey, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the other thing that came up, I thought, was um, the, the sensuality of eating, you mentioned bouillabaisse right now. It was one of the first things that popped into your mind about a ritual. Um, and, and this idea of plants and touching things and this very sensual experience of the world. Um, I had, there were two poems that I marked and one actually that I wanted to listen to you read was Little Rituals. <laughs> Could you read Little Rituals? Sure. Uh, let me just find it. Um, it's page 26? 26, okay. Little Rituals. For my father, you come to life in the candle, a bright shadow dancing. I wait for your words, but you're absent. This time, you're not just late. Get lost in your work, you told me. It was, is good advice. In life, you never resembled anything as flimsy as a shadow or as illusory. Be happy you have a seat on the ferry boat. Be happy you don't have to stand, he cautioned. Now, when I get a seat on the train, your words humble me to what I have, what I might not have in a moment. The candle burns through the day and night. It's been flickering six extra hours. You always had more stamina than most. I remembered and ran to the market before the 11 o'clock news, couldn't let the day pass without lighting the candle. My nod to tradition. Though you often forgot birthdays, anniversaries, to pick me up after dances or a party. But people are imperfect, and that's good. It distinguishes us, teaches us, to
to accept, and if we're lucky, to love. That We're going to come back to your father. Um, <laughs> but actually, the other poem that I marked, um, definitely, I think I'd like to at least acknowledge, if not read one of the poems about food, but the poem that I had marked was after Anna Swear. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, Anna Swear. Um, so <laughs> a different kind of sensuality in here that that really touched me. That uh, <laughs> um, okay. Would you like me to read it? I would love to hear you okay. read it. <laughs> okay. After Anna Swear, I lie with my husband in bed. He asks, "Can I touch it?" He means my firm, round stomach, the hidden child growing in my flesh. He moves his hand toward me, as if approaching a Ouija board. He'd like a message. He'd like hope. It's another summer Sunday morning near the sea without humidity. A light breeze pushes past the pines, slipping through the screens of the little rental cottage, perfect as the white miniature roses I planted, pure as the child growing inside me. In the morning shower, I bend my head toward my belly. I'm agile and can do this. I am agile and can still do this, no problem. I sing, cup my full breasts in my hands while my husband shaves. We go through our rituals, none strong enough to heal what's to come. Oh, I think that poem made me cry. <laughs> um, there's, because as you know from, from the questions that I sent, I have an interest in how poetry ties us to our physical experiences in the world and, and makes us present in our bodies and especially this image of his hand as though touching a Ouija board and the way we put our fingers on a Ouija board as children and try to reach another dimension through mm. our fingertips um, is so delicate not to mention just the ending is heartbreaking but um, do you feel that your poetry and the way that you write makes you conscious and aware of this connection between your body as it moves through the world and how it interacts with the spirit? Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I do think a part of this is that I've always been so physical in terms of um, being athletic, I guess. You know, I used to run track while I was dancing and, um, you know, I loved being outdoors and running around. I mean, I had a lot of energy. Um, I still have a lot of energy. And um, I think that, um, that for me, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say, oh, well, it's, you know, the old Greek thing, but I, I really think that it's very important to be conscious of one's body and how we move through the world and um, interact with other people physically. I remember I, I was in college and I was taking a theater class and um, the director was a, the theater director was a very famous guy, I can't remember his name, and he had us do uh, this, um, this exercise on stage and I'm uh, veering off from my nose right now, but he had us do this exercise on stage where I don't know how many dozens of us were on the stage and we had to move. Uh, Twilight Bark does this with her dancers also, where people have to, I, I should move my hands, I should, <laughs> you have to move around each other without bumping into each other, okay? Yeah. 
and particularly living in New York or wherever. So to be very conscious of one's body, right? And um, so I am very conscious of my body um, when I'm alone, when I'm out on the street, and what I need to eat. I once said to a, a, a friend, her aunt, and I said, excuse me, I really need to get a piece of fruit. And um, her aunt said, well, how do you know when you need a piece of fruit? And, and I, it really stuck with me because I, um, I thought, well, because my body is saying that I need a piece of fruit. And my body is saying, I need to move away from this person on the subway, or I need to exercise, or I need to get out into nature by the sea. And um, I get a little um, where I have to do that, you know, where I have to do that. And I think um, that to... You know, I think that there are many writers who exist in their minds, and, and that's fine. Um, or many dancers who exist in their bodies, and you know. But I, um, I think it's very important for the interweaving, because they inform. You know, your mind will inform your body, your body will inform your mind, and I think it just makes it a fuller experience. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I really like that question, um, and I, and also, even for my poems, and this has happened, I would say, more in the past ten or fifteen years of the writing, because I've never really concrete poetry was never my thing, or, um, but definitely pauses and enjambment, and as I said earlier, the rhythm and the music of um, of the poem, but. The experience of the breath and as much as one can possibly have a physical experience um, from the visual impact of the poem as well as the theme, the music, the rhythm. Uh, when, you, when you read it, you know, I would like for someone to read the poem much the way that I might read it because I do think it would, um, the exchange of the feeling is closer. If, if the, you, you understand what I'm saying, that the way that it actually looks visually is important to me. Yeah. That does make sense. And it, it's very interesting to hear you talk about how your life as a dancer affects you as a poet. <laughs> and now, I usually don't ask questions like this because I don't believe in magic pens and and magic rituals for what makes you a poet. But I would be curious if you have a physical ritual connected to your writing, or if, for example, if you don't get out and row for a week, mm -hmm. does it stifle your writing? Um, it doesn't stifle my writing, but I, you know, people will say things come to me in the shower or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I do, sometimes if I am, rowing, for instance, um, I, I'll get a line will go through my head or an image will come into my mind. And it's, it's almost like a, you know, like pouring Drano down the sink, you know what I mean? Like all this other stuff goes away and then something can surface. Um, but I would say in terms of my ritual, and this really has not changed, um, that I always draft in longhand always and I as I say I've been keeping a journal since I was a kid and 
Um, and that, my, my ritual is, I, so I go through these journals, and then I, you know, dog ear back the pages, and, and then I sit down, and then I transfer the scrawl in the journal um, onto the computer, because I do not work on a typewriter anymore. I, I did <laughs> used to work on a typewriter, but um, I know there's still people working on typewriters, but um, I mean, I think um, computers are very, are very dangerous for writers, because you can hit that delete button and suck out all kinds of stuff that's really good, but um, but I do that that process of writing it down and scratching it out and writing up the sides of the um, page. Um, I think that there is a and you know studies have been done about this and um, and I insist that my students do it too. Uh, they insist on writing their computers and iPads, but there's a tactile. Um, 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 I think the tactile experience of the pen or the the pencil and the paper and the page and having to turn it over. I really do believe that that movement, that rhythm, those pauses, those halts, allow the brain to sort of run around a corner, right? Whereas you don't have that same experience on um, a computer. I mean, if I'm writing an article, I think I pretty much draft it on the computer, but I don't, I don't write like that. I don't write my poetry like that. Hmm. Ultimately, I do get to that stage, right? You know, um, but I, dra I have continued to draft in my journals. Yeah. You've talked about how your body affects your writing. Is there a vice versa? Is there something about your writing or your reading that makes you see the world in a different way? Um, well, you know, I'd gone through your questions and um, the practice of writing on your poet's attention, the word, how you feel. And I, I, if that's the question that you're asking, I think that um, I'm extremely, you know, different. If you ask poets, like, well, you know, what is it? that gets you writing. And some will say music, or some will say, you know, um, experience. For me, um, I'm very visual, and so something will hit me um, visually. Um, it, I might be sitting on a bus and something just cracks me up, or something I might hear. I was sitting on a bus and two women were talking about the price of chicken, and I just found that hysterical. And then, you know, I. I wrote that down in my journal, and it turned out not to be some, the poem turned out not to be a very funny poem, but it started out funny. But I think that um, observing is extremely important. I think observing should be taught, actually, um, and in school, and I think it should be taught in medical school. Uh, and they do, you know, uh, because observation, you can learn so much from observation in the details and the subtlety of things. and. Um, so I do think that observing is, is very important and, you know, I think it affects your brain. And, um, and that thing with observing and, and physicality and pain, I, I, there was a period of time when my knees were just, uh, were just killing me. I was just too much dancing, too much running, too much skiing, et cetera. And I had to have arthroscopy on my knees, blah, blah, blah. And, and through this period of time of excruciating pain, and then there was a period of time that was on crutches, 
um, after going through that. And I mean, it's not that I've never had pain in my life. I mean, as a child, I broke my, my leg from my ankle to my hip. Um, but I started noticing people walking down the subway stairs and not getting agitated like, you know, you're going so, you know, why can't you speed it up? Or just being more aware. And because I, I teach at a large um, teaching medical institution hospital, you know, you just have to slow your pace down because you are surrounded by seriously, seriously ill um, and disabled people. And I think that's a very important thing. I think what I mentioned earlier about empathy, not that you have to have been tortured or have a lot of pain, but this empathy to be aware that not everybody's moving around the same body that you might be moving around in. But you say that to observe should be taught in school, but that is what you're teaching, isn't it? Can you say a little bit about what your day job is? Um, well, it's part of my, um, I'm, I do, I'm not full-time at, at the hospital, but I do teach um, medical students and some of my classes, I do get attendings and researchers. Um, and I teach uh, narrative and reflective writing, and I teach creative writing, and I teach um, end of life up. Um, I teach medicine literature and writing. Um, and in medicine literature and writing, it's rather interesting because med medicine society and writing, because it's the, um, the, the weave between how you move around in society and how you can teach yourself to be um, more human and coming from a more humanistic, um, um, I don't want to say nurturing, but empathetic place, right? And I do um, give exercises to, you know, exercises, writing exercises to my students about observation. And it, you know, whether it's bringing in a crate of clementines and <laughs> what they might, you know, and I say, okay, so your first exercise, okay, here are these clementines and, and everybody loves food, right? So, um, and, oh, the teacher brought food to class, but, um, and, but they have to do it in a way where they're slowly peeling clementines, they're smelling it, they're tasting it, etc. And to observe, and the stickiness on their finger. And some people have never eaten a clementine. They never really knew that a clementine was a clementine, right? Yeah. And, uh, um, and, or I will read um, a passage. Where I, either I'll read a poem or, or I'll read a passage. And I won't let them take notes. And I'll say, what was it that you heard? What was it that you observed from this passage? And it's very interesting. It's different for everyone. And I think that... I, I also try to teach them that everybody has their own language. We, in, at least in my classes, we might all speak English, but everybody, whether they're from, I mean, I get students from all over the world, and whether they're coming from the Bronx or they're coming from um, Haiti or they're coming from Stockholm or they're coming from Nigeria, um, we choose our own images. We choose those words we like. We, we express ourselves from that place we came from. And um, 
I always find it fascinating for people who come from places like the Caribbean or the South or the diff their different language, and I try to get them to observe your language is, I grew up in Philadelphia, right? My, my language, you know, I am, I'm a Philly girl, right? So I, <laughs> I have a, a particular accent, particular, you know, I say Jimmy's, I don't say sprinkles, right? <laughs> you know, these are, these are, you know, I say hoagies, I don't say subs, right? The, we need to observe those things that catch our attention, those things that make us feel something. So I think observation is like DNA. I really do. I think it just goes through us all the time. And we just need to be aware of what it is that stirs us and to be authentic in that. You know, I, I'll say this one more thing about my students is I'll say to, I'll say to my students, you know, but that's not the way you talk. This writing that I'm reading doesn't sound at all the way that you speak. And they say, well, that's my writing voice. And I say, well, why is your writing voice why is it so different from your speaking voice? Oh, well, because I, right? I, I think that that is very important to observe what comes out of your mouth and, and to try to make that closer. Um, so it's all, I think observation is, comes in many different um, varieties. Yeah. yeah. I don't have an elegant segue for this, but I really wanted to get back to your father. Um, you mentioned more than once your father talking about being thankful for that you have a seat on the ferry. Right. Here we go. Yeah, only game in town. Uh, the poem is prefaced right. with a quote from Paul B. Yeah. I guess My that's father. why it felt like the whole book sort of coalesced as a gift to him. Does it feel that way to you? Am I completely off base? Oh, it's very interesting. Um, I... I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I mean, you're right that Colby is my father. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are poems in here um, to my father, to my mother, to, yeah. to friends, to um, my ex-husband, mm -hmm. <laughs> ex-boyfriend. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, I think that he had a huge influence on me. And I think that, um, I think I take after him a lot and I think that we understood each other um, a lot and um, you know there I, I think I was in my early 20s and I was trying to get my work published and I was just, I wasn't making any money and I was trying to dance and I mean I was making money from little articles that I was writing and I was trying to dance and um, and he was in Philadelphia I was in New York and we would have these phone conversations and um, and I would go on and on and I'm so miserable and depressed. And he would say, you must get lost in your work. And are you writing? You must get lost in your work. And um, that was his, his anchor. And, um, and my saying to you, my always going back to my poetry, I, without a doubt, my poetry has been an anchor for me. There's a lot of nautical imagery in the, in what your your metaphors here, um, and I don't know if this is intentional, but when I see the seat on the ferry boat, mm -hmm. because I grew up in the desert, uh -huh. my mind goes to Sharon and the river Styx and the ferryman. Do you see um Do you see a depth to double meaning there? To be happy, you have a seat on the ferry boat. In that sense, or were you? Has that not occurred to you? 
Um, the, no, he he really said that to me. That was oh, really quote. Yeah. He's, yeah. He really, I, and I think it was in one of these like you know sort of whining uh, moods that I was in, and um, and he was he had he had a very difficult life. I mean, he was a very serious inventor uh, for NASA and for the medical field, and um, but he went through periods of you know invention, you know patents, no patents, money, no money, and. But he had this extraordinary um, positive view. I mean, he had got enormous joy from art and photography and being with his kids. And he would turn the camera and say, yeah, but look at this. And I did not see that thing with River Sticks. I really just saw it as um, you got to change your mind, Mag. You know, you've got to, you, you can't sink down into this place you've got to say oh there are these all these people they're tired they they don't have a seat on the ferry be happy you have a seat on the ferry but be happy you don't have to stand um and i was saying this to a friend the other day about being grateful and i without sounding you know saccharine or anything i um one i think living in new york i think um Growing up, my grandparents were immigrants. I think that um, what we're going through right now in the United States, our government, um, and the lack of leadership, I think that we have to be really, really grateful for um, what we have. And of course, it's easy to forget about that and just get mired in our own stuff. But I think I... um, he, he had a strength in, in despite whatever hell he might have been going through and trying to bring, you know, support for kids, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you got you to gotta find something good in it. You yeah. know, you got to find something good in it. And so I, I wasn't going river sticks or anything. I, it yeah. really was, you know, like a slap, you know, a slap and, you know, look who's walking through the doors of NYU's medicine you know <laughs> um, yeah yeah but i think isn't that one of the kind of um well i hate to sound silly myself uh, saccharine but uh, it's sort of the beauty of poetry is that i since i have had very little associations to fairy boats in my life i immediately <laughs> go to a metaphor and a myth uh-huh. and my metaphor is a be happy you have a seat on the ferry boat, meaning the same thing you're talking about, gratitude that through this journey of my life, be glad I have a seat on the ferry boat. Uh, uh, uh. Um, So, and I think to listen to you talk about ritual and your love of fairies, it just all coalesces very beautifully in my mind as one big poetic intention. Oh, oh. but I don't know if you see it that way, or uh, as you said, it was not intentional, but it, isn't that the beauty of why your poetry will communicate outward, even when it is particular and specific to you? Maybe this is a very good example of where poetry makes that leap for someone else who doesn't have the concrete experiences that you have. Oh, I would love for that to be the case. You know, um, I... You know something? I, I don't know how my work, it's, and it's not a naivete, I'm not claiming naivete here, but I'm really not sure how my work um, strikes people unless, um, you know, if somebody reviews something of my work or somebody asks, 
me questions or interviews me, or if I'm at a reading and people will ask me questions, or if people will laugh, or if there will be a silence when I'm reading something. Um, and um, I remember after my first book came out and people came up to me, I was doing a lot of reading, and they, they were just, oh, this reminds me of this and this reminds me of that. And um, I don't write trying to have, maybe, maybe I'm swerving off here, I don't write trying to have that effect or impact. I would like to bring somebody into my world and um, for someone to let me into their, in their world. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and to expand, maybe to expand um, their world by having a little taste of what my world was, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, I know for me, I get that experience from a lot of poetry, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I, Kavafi or you know Tom Lux, who recently died, or Galway Canal, who I knew pretty well, you know. I feel that I'm led into their world, and it makes me think differently, and it and um, it influences me. But I think that you can't be sh shut out. I mean, I will get this from students who think that they can't write poetry. Um, it's sort of what I was saying at the beginning, how Seamus said he never thought that he could write poetry or appreciate it until he read someone's work that let him in. And I, you know, I, for me, I think the accessibility, where I don't have to be, you know, referring to a dictionary all the time, trying to figure out what this poet is trying to say, that's very important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and for some people, I don't think that is an affect but for me, that would be an affect to sort of make it more difficult. I mean, there are some poets um, who are very well known and very, you know, celebrated who um, I can appreciate their work, but it doesn't hit me on a visceral level, on this mm -hmm. physical, emotional, mental level that you've been asking about. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's exactly what happened in, in especially in that poem for me, because again, with my background being so different from yours, the myth and the language there was a portal for me to come into the sensual everyday experience of your world. Oh. So if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. We're fortunate oh, that's enough. Great. That's okay. great. Okay. <laughs> so take this out, Ren. Take this out. Well, I don't know. I can, I can see if we can make sense here because what I'm seeing is kind of how poetry can function both inward and outward. I'm not saying you meant to make some big mythic statement. Yeah but that that little association that I have in my mind let me crawl in so yeah. that even though I don't see that I see the depth and I get sort of a relationship emotionally and then I can go down into the details with that emotion if that makes sense I carry my baggage that, in <laughs> absolutely that that is really that's wonderful and particularly that that you say about having grown up in the desert so even my speaking about something which is rather foreign, mm -hmm. uh, still enables you to have that experience that you may otherwise not have had. I have, I have many favorite poems. But when I thought about this poem, what came about your question, what I thought about, <clears throat> it was crazy because I haven't read her work in so long. And to me, she's not a major poet in my life. But 
I love the poem by Mae Swenson called Painting the Gate. The, the reason, uh, and I, I don't know why the, the poem came to mind, but it struck me um, many years ago, this poem, because, um, and I don't want to give the poem away, but I will just say that, that something that she was trying to do, that she found it such a feat to get accomplished. Um, and through sheer perseverance, she, she got it, she gets it done. And, and it's a, I think the subject matter is actually very serious, but she looks at it through a lens of humor. And, um, and I think that I try to do that in, in my work. I, I, I would like to think that, um, my serious, you know, after Anna Swear, for instance, well, that one's just serious, but that there are some poems that are very serious that I um, um, look at through the lens of humor to make the pain easier, um, more easier to take. Painting the Gate. I painted the mailbox. That was fun. I painted a postal blue. Then I painted the gate. I painted a spider that got on the gate. I painted his mate. I painted the ivy around the gate, some stones I painted blue, and part of the cat as he rubbed by. I painted my hair, I painted my shoe. I painted the slats both front and back, all their beveled edges too. I painted the numbers on the gate. I shouldn't have, but it was too late. I painted the post, each side and top. I painted the hinges, the handle, the lock, several ants and a moth asleep in a crack. At last, I was through. I painted the gate, shut me out with both hands dark blue, as well as my nose, which early on, because of a sudden itch, got painted. But wait, I painted the gate. <laughs> and, you know, as I read that, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think I mentioned to you as a child, my mother, besides Shakespeare, I mean, she read to us these limericks, you know, Lear's limericks, and it has that rhythmic with, um, you know, rhyming, and I, my poems don't, I don't rhyme my poems, and I was just reading there, and there is this rhyming, you know, rhythm, which is not at all like my work, but um, it's really the humor, I mean, I think Zimborska does the same thing, I mean, I have a poem called Zimborska, Zimborska does the same thing, where something might be a, a trial for her to do, as in this case, the poet Mae Swenson, I interpreted it is that she was just trying. She kept putting off this task of painting this gate. And finally, no matter whatever it took for her to do, she would paint that gate. And so when I look at this poem, which is humorous and rhythmic, and um, I think about what got her to that point. And it didn't matter that she was covered in blue. It didn't matter that, okay, so there's a spider that's in the, you know, under the, she painted the gate. <laughs> and I think sometimes it takes that to get something done. Oh, thank you for that. I was not familiar with this poem. It's really very lovely. I may use that for motivation. <laughs> thank you for listening to this choice podcast, this time with Madeline Beckman. Please check thischoicepodcast.com or the Facebook page for links for more information about Madeline and her work. This Choice is a labor of love and curiosity.
so please do what you can to support the efforts of poets and the small and independent publishers we rely on as readers and as writers. This is Ren Pao. I hope you'll join me again soon.